0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. It's
1: part of the culture telling us that we're not allowed to. It's part of the culture telling us, you know, that we feel humiliated. You know, that's the thing about surfing is that when you're out in the lineup, like everybody knows you're the kook. I mean, there is just no way around it. And what I have found is that I had to get over, you know, surfing is the coolest sport in the world if you're good at it. <laughs> it mm-hmm. The thing, I mean, there's nothing less cool than a not good surfer. <laughs> and and, and, and that, that would be me. Yeah. You know, it doesn't mean I can't surf. You know, I do surf. When people see me catch waves, they're always completely shocked because they're like, oh my God, you do surf. I'm like, yeah, I can surf. It's just, it just it's hard for me, but I yeah. I can once I you know paddle into catch and you know catch a wave I can catch sections and have a nice ride and blah 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 they're like oh you could I was like yeah I can do this but <laughs> you know, so much of it is not pretty but what yeah. I found is that what was beautiful is when I let go of that idea of okay I have to let go of the way I'm afraid people or what they're thinking about me right because actually people aren't really thinking about you because they just yeah. out themselves and what they. You know people are thinking about their own ways. they just don't want you in the way. But I think this is a metaphor for everything else. It's like, why do people not judge you if you aren't judging yourself, right?
2: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com.
3: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
4: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United UnitedHealthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door.
0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Karen,
2: welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
0: Thanks, Janie. It's good to be here.
2: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So um, I found out about your book uh, as I often do from another book written by one of our uh, upcoming podcast guests and former podcast guest Jennifer Loudon, and it was a book called "It's Great to Suck at Something," uh, which I think that just hearing that people are probably going to be like, "No, it's not," uh, but the funny thing about it was, uh, you know, I think Jen had some quote in there, and I ordered it specifically because of that quote, and I was pleasantly surprised to find that the entire basis for the book was surfing as the metaphor and uh having done you
1: didn't know that before you got it
2: i didn't i had no idea
1: oh
0: that's so
2: right when i opened it i thought to myself oh my god i was like we have to talk like there's no way i'm i'm not going to email you and uh wanting wanting to talk to you about this but before we get into the concepts of the book i want to ask you what i think is a really relevant and fitting place to start and that is uh what is one of the most important things that one or both of your parents taught you uh about values, or about sucking in particular, that have influenced and shaped who you've become and what you've ended up doing with your life?
1: Oh, wow. That's an amazing first question to ask. Um, Did they teach me anything in this way? You know, I think I would say that my dad, my father, with whom I'm very, very close, um, when I was, he was an athlete, and he was a very good athlete, and I was basically a good ath- athlete as well, kind of naturally, but there were certain things that um, I couldn't do very easily, and um, it was funny. I, you know, one of I couldn't throw a ball. I could never throw a ball. He used to just think it was the most hilarious thing that I was so strong and capable, but it's like throwing a ball, just like it eluded me. And um, when I wanted to be um, at high school, I was the unlikely. Um, um, athlete of being both a cheerleader and a shot putter. (laughs) And, uh, and it, it it was a, it was an odd combination and the shot putting weirdly came, even though I couldn't throw a ball, I could put, you know, the shot. I was actually very quite good at, I was really good at it. Um, But cheerleading just didn't come natural to me. And, and I sort of love the yin yang of, of those two kind of, you know, those, those two disciplines. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, people had grown up doing cheerleading and I hadn't, And so I would go in the front, I would just go into the front of the house and he would help me jump. He was very strong. So I would try to do these jumps and I just couldn't figure it out. I literally just had to do it on my own. I would just jump and jump and jump. And he always, he was just there helping me through it. He didn't discourage me. He didn't say, you can't do this. When it came to the physical stuff, he was actually very um, supportive And just, you know, you push through, you push through, you train, you train, you know, you learn how to do it. And so there was a very much a can-do attitude um, about it when it came to the life of the body. It was very different with the life of the mind, but that's another conversation.
2: (laughs) Mm. So there are two things that, uh, you know, come from this. One, this is something I, I wondered, and just because you mentioned you were really close to your dad, uh, you know, I, I realize uh, looking at the relationship that I have with my dad and my sister has with my dad, I, I think they're two fundamentally different relationships. And for a long time, I used to kind of envy that and think, oh, um, I'm not going to have that. Maybe it's I'm not as as interesting or cool. Like the ongoing joke is that, you know, my dad, my sister calls like, you know, his, you know, you just hear the change in his tone of voice, like when she walks in a room. But what I realized was that was nothing to do with the bond that I have between he, me and him. I realized that is just a father and daughter thing. and I wonder, you know, as somebody who just mentioned you're close to your father, what do you think that's about? Like, why is that? And you have sons. So is it, you know, how does that play out?
1: Yeah, I do. Um, You know what? I think, you know, I know just as many people who are close to their, you know, closer to their moms, like where their moms are their best friends and they don't have good relationships with their dads. You know, I, I would hate to kind of make a generalization about fathers and daughters you know, and mothers and sons, because I think it would kind of not count into the mo- relationships between mothers and daughters and fathers and sons. Right. Uh, I, I I I don't know if it's in in our case. Interestingly, I think it was less about me being his daughter than it was about me being of his three children most like him. Mm. Interestingly, so I share a, a lot of his qualities and still do i mean he's 89 um he's just a beautiful wonderful 89 year old um man but um and we're still we're still very close but i think we we shared we shared a lot in the sense that you know from a character point of view we recognized each other by the way there were enormous fights i mean <laughs> uh, I can't say it wasn't all you know you know songs and sunshine um yeah. there huge fights that we had partly because we would just go head to head and I would take him on and, you know, and then, you know, in his softer moments, he'd be like, yeah, you know, you remind me of me, you know, cause he was headstrong when he was young. And then I have relationships with my sons, which are very, very, um, I feel very blessed because they're, they're extraordinary relationships. And I feel blessed every day by them, mm-hmm. wow. by their grace in my life. Really. I mean, I feel, just feel graced by them. But I think that, you know, maybe that love, you know, it, 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 it maybe funnels down in a way, like you learn maybe how to love, you know, through one of your parents and, and, you know, my mom, it's a different story. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I have two stepdaughters I love, uh, you know, as well. So I'm really close to them. So again, I don't know how much of it is gender related as it is, um, you know, uh, having an open heart, and, mm-hmm. and wherever that open heart happens, that's where the relationships happen. If you have two open hearts, I think that's where the connection gets made. I'm not to say that you and your dad didn't have that. Yeah. But, you know, who knows? Like, there could be comp, could have been. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I, I can't even speculate about your cool. family. I don't know your family.
2: But- <laughs> yeah. I, I think that to me, I think what what I've come to see is that. It's love that that it's expressed in really different ways. So, like you know, I I think that one of the things I learned from six months of therapy was that my primary love languages are words of affection and uh, physical affection. You know, words of affirmation and physical affection. Two things that most Indian parents just don't do because it's just culturally not part of the way we operate. Like I, the first time I saw my parents kiss, I was like, "Holy shit, that was awkward." Uh, (laughs) You know, and it was. I mean, it was probably well into my 30s. It was just like, "Oh, I didn't know you guys ever did that." At least not in our (laughs) presence. Um, yeah,
1: but then, yeah. you know,
2: he'll do things that out of the blue, you know, he's like, Hey, he's like, you know, I want the air to be clean in your apartment. I shipped two air filters for you and your roommate to cut from Costco. They'll be there on Thursday. And uh, so, what we started learning, love. Is love, yeah, absolutely. Like, just, you know, or here's, I sent three pairs of pajamas to you. It's like, what am I going to do with three pairs of pajamas and why? He's <laughs> like, Oh, they were on sale at Costco. And that to me, I realized was, okay, this is, you know, an expression of love. It just may not sure. be expressed in the way that uh, I want it to be, which was one of my most profound realizations about the relationship I have with him. Uh, So I think that what I wonder about um, sort of how you arrive at this whole idea of it's great to suck at something in the career that you've had uh, is what advice did your family give you career-wise? Like what led you down this trajectory? Because I think that, particularly for for somebody like me this was very much unplanned i mean you are a publisher you're a writer you know you you've been in this world for a long time and one of the things that we all know is that we're signing up for a life in which nothing is guaranteed
1: yeah yeah well i don't know that anything anywhere is guaranteed yeah. it doesn't have a it it might have a less of a safety net in some ways um yeah. Well, I, I, it's the opposite. I didn't get encouragement. Um, I got discouragement. My father was actually um, very pessimistic about my prospects in publishing. I had been, um, I had followed in his footsteps, and my first job out of college was at—I um, mean, this is crazy—but it was at Price Waterhouse, and I was a tax consultant for foreign nationals and <laughs> working in the United States. I mean, you can't make this up. And, um, I happen to be, I have a pretty good facility with numbers and, and they don't scare me at all. And I wound up being very good at it. I hated it. I just hated it. And, but you know, it was, you know, he was very proud and, you know, I think his first job might've even been at Pricewaterhouse when he was, you know, a young man. And so I, when I decided to quit, um, and, pursue well first i was going to grad school then i dropped out of grad school then i got into publishing so my path was zigzag to say you know at best so i didn't get encouragement i, I got the opposite but you know i also love i love nothing better than a no um i've been like that since i've been a kid it's like if you just tell me no i just kind of doubled down on the yes and that's part of why probably i could persist and you know um you know, surfing when it was so hard for me. Yeah. Uh, but so when he said, "No, it's not for people like you," and I thought, "Well, what does that what does that mean?" Um, and so I, 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 I said, "Well, I'll you know I'll show you," you know. And I got into it. And many years later, many years later, like twenty years later, we're sitting in my backyard, you know, at this house where I'm sitting now, New Jersey. He lives in New Jersey as well. Um, and, uh, he said, you know, I never understood that there was a path to success in the world that you're in. And I said, no. well, yeah, it's relative success, dad, but you know, it's something I love doing and I've devoted my life to it. So that is the measure of success. And I've been able to support my family doing it as well. So mm-hmm. it, we live nicely, absolutely nicely. Um, and I've, you know, stuck with it for the past 30 something years. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I didn't, I, you know, it, it wasn't forged. It wasn't a path forged. I didn't go to the, you know, when I got into publishing, you know, I didn't go to the right schools. I don't have the right education. I'm a public New Jersey Uh public school educated Italian American who went to a Ohio state and had an unfocused, um, college career and was kind of lost. The only thing that persisted from when I was very young, and I don't know where this comes from. This is just I divinely gifted i think from some other place is that i love literature mm. i just i love books i love literature i loved them when i was young i grew up in a household with no books uh, my family didn't read they were they you know my mother only graduated high school my father went to night school i mean we were not um a, was not a super educated family extended or immediate and um I found my way to books because they spoke to me and I love them. And then once I discovered a library that I could just get on my bike and go to the library, it was like, it was like a playland for me. I, and, and where does that come from? I, I don't even know. I always knew that the world was really big out there. And, you know, if you live in a tiny, you know, little tiny town with a relatively clustered, you know, cloistered and clustered group of, you know, Italian-Americans, you know, family, and extended family, and I was like, oh, but there's this world out there and the way for me to access it, because I couldn't, we didn't access it in the way we lived, but I could access it through books. Mm. And I felt that very young, and I would get, I mean, books still to this day, I mean, they get me, it's all, I mean, I read, my <laughs> sons always say, if you're not, you know, if you're not working or editing or publishing or yeah. reading or writing, you're reading. Uh-huh. You know, what I mean? like like that's what I do. And then I surf and I cook. I mean, my life is pretty well. It's like I surf. <laughs> well, my very- priority. I will if if I could surf, I would surf first before I do anything. Yeah. Except as you know, it's hard to do, right? Because right, got to be swell. There's got to be you know everything's got to be working. If yeah. it's working. I just go, yeah, I'm going to go surf. And, well, and you know, I have a job in New York City, so that doesn't right. work out. But, you know, I, I travel to do it and I, I make time for it. And I love to cook and that's my way of, of centering and relaxing. Yeah. And then otherwise I'm reading, writing, publishing, editing. That's all I do. It's like I live in books and I still get as excited to open up a new book as I did when I was 11 years old. Wow, that I think that just comes—you kind of wonder where it comes from. There was no influence, really, Mm -hmm. except that once I found them, I thought these are. I mean, I still love to hold them. I remember Dr. Seuss books when I was a little kid. Were like, I I still look at Dr. Seuss books with so much love in my heart because when I was, I think they're the first books I registered reading and holding and loving. And I was probably
2: five, six years yeah. old. Wow. It's, you know, it, it's funny to listen to you express this. It's almost like you might've been my other mother in another life just because <laughs> I feel like you and I are so similar in so many ways. Um, you know, like I, I, jokingly always say I'm the redheaded stepchild of penguin portfolio. Like these are all people who are like Seth Godin, you know, um, Simon Sinek. And then here's the guy who got fired from every job and, you know, got a 2.97 GPA at Berkeley. It's like, this was just a giant fluke or a mistake. Yeah. Um but I think this love of books is really fascinating to me because I, I relate so much. I remember when we got The Great Gatsby, and then right after that, I picked up This Side of Paradise. And I remember I would walk into a bookstore uh, on the Santa Monica Promenade that's obviously no longer there, and they would have these floor-to-ceiling bookshelves. And I thought to myself, like, I, I don't know how or why, but I can spend hours in here. Yes. And the funny thing yes. is that now, literally when I land in a city, the first thing I do is go and look for a bookstore that I haven't been to. And I remember the day I got paid for my previous book, my friend's like, what are you doing? I was like, well, I'm going to go to the bookstore and buy your book, buy some books. <laughs> like, wait wait a minute. What? He's like, you just got paid for writing your book and you're going to spend it all on books? It's like, yeah, that seems yeah. like the most logical thing to do.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, we are over. Roc- Rocco was just laughing because he came back from, he was at Amherst college and then his final his senior year and he had to he had to leave but we're (laughs) we're in the apartment and i said he said this is ridiculous every single surface and we live in manhattan so we don't have that much space and it's like every surface is piled with books and i was like I don't even know what to do with it I just want I said it makes me just want to move Uh like what to do with them because the last time we moved we moved into the apartment but it was almost it was 18 years ago we sold sold got rid of you know we culled our books we really because we we don't have a library we don't have space so we call and I kept just the most important books figuring I can just buy the books that I need to read later on and I called we called like between my husband and I called like 3,000 books and I said and now we probably have—I don't know how many thousands we have in the house. And it's covered the boys, you know, their room because they grew up reading books. So it's all their books. It's my my books that I've accumulated eighteen years, and, and Joel's books. It's just so crazy. And I just think I can't even imagine living a life without them. Like mm-hmm. they're, they're they're like they're so intimate. You know what I mean? Like that's the thing about books, right? Like you read when you read well, the Great Gatsby, just is mind blowing because it's actually I think it's a perfect perfectly executed book. Um, but yeah, yeah. They're like, they're like, they're like friends. They're, they're, they're intimates, you know, and you yeah. can go to them. And oh, anyway, yeah, I do. Why? Yeah. Yeah.
2: So what, what this makes me wonder is that, you know, and I've asked this question in some form or another to hundreds of people at this point, like why do some people never find that? Like whatever this thing is, maybe it's not, what, what is their version? You know, sometimes people don't, they lose their version of this at some point in their life. Why is that and how do they get it back?
1: Do you know what I, I I don't, you know, I, I think a couple of things about this. And I, and I, again, I think, you know, some people just say, I don't like to read. Here's what I think. I think, I think people have, um, um, people don't read the right books when they're young that don't speak to them. And then they go to school and they're forced to read books that that they don't relate to, right. That have nothing to do with their experience. And therefore they feel like books are something that's, you know, I've never read something that, you know, appeals to, there's, there's, there's a book for everyone, but, you know, finding that I think is, is really important. So I think kids are, they don't find them. And then I think that when, you know, they do have to read, they're forced to read. I do think that reading, I I used to do with my, with my kids when I was, you know, making them like they needed to go to bed or they weren't listening to me or something. I said, you know what? No books tonight. Mm. That's their punishment was no books. So I'd say, you know, we're not reading tonight. We're not reading. You can't read tonight. They'd be like, no, no. And I'm like, no, you can't read. You guys are not listening to me. You know what parents often do? Get to your room and read. Yeah. Like, okay, it becomes a punishment. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, to a young brain, if you're using books as punishment, then all of a sudden it becomes this thing that you were, again, forced to do that you were doing when you weren't behaving. So I think those two things. And I think third thing is that I believe that a lot of kids have challenges And reading, like a lot of people who don't like reading actually have challenges from a a kind of either a disability, like a kind of dyslexia or, you know, an attention problem or a deciphering problem. I do think that there are a lot of, you know, and I don't, I'm not a doctor, so I can't say this with certainty, just that I know a lot of my, my, in my immediate family, if I look at the readers, the ones who aren't readers are people who struggled because they're, they're, Struggle with reading wasn't acknowledged and worked around when they were younger. So they grew up to think it's hard, you know, it's hard work. Uh-huh. When in fact, they were able to overcome it, you know, they might have a workaround with reading or they might, you know, I think audiobooks, you know, the advent of audiobooks has been, you know, really real. The popularity of them recently has been really great for people who struggle with reading because yeah. it is reading. Listening to a book is reading, you know, it's, they're all different ways of reading. So we know a lot of you have been listening to us for years, and it means the world to
2: us. What we do here at The Unmistakable Creative wouldn't be possible without the support of our listeners. If the podcast has been valuable to you, one of the best ways you can support us is to subscribe to Unmistakable Creative Prime. It gives you access to transcripts, all of our courses, monthly coaching calls, live chats with our guests, and an incredible community of creatives. And it costs less than you spend on a cup of coffee every month. For the school teachers and people in our education system, Prime is completely free to help you with this transition to teaching online. We've packed it with a ton of value and actionable content, and we hope you'll check it out. Just go to unmistakablecreative.com slash prime to learn more. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash prime. So, you know, I wonder, you know, we specifically talked about the love for reading, but I think that to me, one of the other things that's really interesting about your life and your career is that you just have this love for this thing that you do. And I think somewhere along the way, as adults, we kind of lose the hope that maybe that just Doesn't exist in our life. Like we're not going to have this career that is so rewarding and fulfilling. I mean, for somebody who has this love for books, it's kind of like you basically get to you know bathe in clouds all day because of your job. Uh, (laughs) You know what I mean? I'm I'm being you know for for the sake of example. (laughs) Look, we both know that there's a very ugly side to all of this as well. um, Having been in the industry, but I think that you know one thing that I find is is that we sort of lose this uh, sort of childhood dream and adulthood uh, idea and. I wonder, do you think people can get it back at later in life? I mean, cause I, I think that I'm one of those rare examples of, okay, I found this calling of wanting to write, you know, at, you know, like I was 37 when I published my first book. Um, and yeah. up until then it was just like, oh, I'm just a giant fuck up who's 40 years behind my life plan.
1: Yeah. That thing, that thing that people do, which is to judge like where they're at and, you know, compared to other people. So remember where you're at is where you are. But the only, the only time that you know you attach a value to it is when you compare it to somebody else's life, who's either making more money or further in their career, or who found their thing. And I think a lot of it, you know, I think a lot of it is, is that is that not accepting sort of where you are? I mean, I see this all the time. I see it with kids a lot. And, and not that everybody can follow their, you know, follow their bliss. I mean, that's, you know, that would that's a privilege. This is a privileged person talking, right? Because I was yeah. able to do that on one hand. But, you know, privilege meaning, you know, we had no money. I mean, I had no direction. And I had to stumble into a lot of things before I fell into books. And I didn't get into you know i always loved literature but it felt um it actually felt um out of reach for me because i felt like a you know working class you know girl from new jersey doesn't have the right to enter the kind of world of letters and books and literature which is bullshit of course i mean that's right. ridiculous but but you know it was it felt defeat to me and it felt um out of my reach and i had a job where i was doing really really well and i literally quit took a half cut and pay to become an editorial assistant at random house. And I can go through the, the the machinations of how I stumbled into that. But, um, I mean, I took a chance where I was, you know, financially in a really good place as a young professional and said, I'm just not happy. And it's like, well, what do you love? You know, I was asking, what do I love? It's like, I just love to read. And then I was like, well, you know, somebody said, well, I don't work in publishing. I said, they don't hire people like me in publishing. You know, I didn't have the right pedigree. I didn't have the right education. I didn't have the right experience. Um, and you know what, I was just dogged about it and it took me a while, but I finally like, you know, landed a job and, uh, went out, but at that point I was 28 years old. I mean, I'd been out and about a little bit, so I didn't even find it when I landed in, it was that random house? Um, and I landed there and I thought, Oh, I'm home. I'm home. Mm. But you know what there? I, I left it you know, I also walked out four and a half years later because I thought you don't make any money in publishing and you work basically you know, sixty hour weeks on a good week. Like, <laughs> Why am I doing this? And so I thought, this is ridiculous. This, and you get disillusioned, just like everybody else. And I think, oh, I thought it was just about reading and it's not. it's about this and that so I had to leave and you know, for three years and come back to it. <laughs> you know the 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 road was not like all love and sunshine, even when I found it, I struggled with it because. Yeah because it's, it's, it's a grind. You know, I have a friend who's a banker and she's like, she makes a lot more money than I do. She goes, you work harder than like, I've, I've, you know, which is not a banker. She's an analyst, but you know, she does really well. And she's like, you work so hard. It's so insane. I was like, yeah, but I can spend my, you know, I could spend, you know, my days with, uh, with authors and writers and creatives and stuff. And I don't think I could walk into, I couldn't spend it with, Bankers or former bankers, I mean okay. I just I couldn't and not not that they're bad people I mean I, I love you know some of my friends are bankers and then <laughs> I love them, and uh, we need them, but that's just not where I wanted to spend my day because I wanted mm-hmm. to be able to have conversations that I wanted to have the conversations are good. Yeah. But, you know, the price for finding the thing that you love and sticking with it, and you know, so I quit after four and a half years and then I almost quit again after um, another few years. I, I left, I came back after three and then I almost quit again. And because I said to somebody, I was like, I can't keep doing this. I'm not making, I'm barely able to support myself. And somebody said, somebody gave me advice and just said, just stick, just stick with it. Like you've yeah. got to stick and that is going to, you're gonna be okay. You're never gonna get rich, but you're gonna do fine if you just. And I was like, okay, okay, but it took me like 15 years to make a, <laughs> a living yeah. where I could actually support my family, mm-hmm. you know, without being terrified. Yeah.
2: So yeah. you know, I, I'm i that means I'm, I'm actually on track. I'm about 10 years <laughs> in. So uh.
1: there you go. I mean, it's yeah. So following the thing that you love, you know, the the problem is is that you know it's often not the thing that's gonna make you the most money, give you the most prestige, or People don't, you know, I mean, people, in the book world, yeah. you know, we all, we all love it, but, you know, outside of the book world, people don't really know what we do. Um,
2: yeah. I always and, think people always think that just books fall from the sky. They don't realize that somebody sits in a
1: room quietly, you know, laboring over this for years. And, and that's, and that's the beginning of it, right? The laboring over for years, which we've both done. And then there's the process of publishing, which is like another year or yeah. two. That's a whole beast in and of itself. Yeah for, for, yeah. for any book to land in any bookstore, which actually is not happening right now, but that's another story. Yeah. But for the to land in any bookstore always seems like a miracle to me. Um, mm-hmm. And that's okay. I mean, people don't need to see the underside of it because that's true of any, you know, endeavor.
2: Yeah. Um, I think that to me, that makes a, a perfect segue into getting into your book. Uh, you know, it's great to suck at something. Like I said, I think to me, you know, right when we started this, like I opened it up and I was like, holy shit, wait a minute, this is a book about surfing. Uh, and I, I think, you know, obviously I highlighted and underlined tons of this, but one of the things you said is that quitting before we start is the tragedy. The other side of frustration and discouragement is tenacity and hope. Let's live in the doing. The process itself is where we should find satisfaction. Success is a reward we should not come to expect. Once success is attained, if ever, we should be humbled by it. And the reason I wanted to start there is because I think that is particularly relevant in the world that we live in today. Um, In the wake of a college admissions scandal, uh in the wake of you know how people go to social media. I think that, you know, particularly because you've been around this world for so long. Um, you know, I I think that for me, I realized that when I started, my expectations were, oh, I can go from idea to execution in record time. So I should be able to succeed just as quickly. Of course, anybody who has, as you said, you know, been willing to stick realizes that wait a minute. Um, I can go from idea to execution in record time. To make any semblance of success at the idea is going to take way longer than I thought. Uh, yeah. And yet, I think we're losing that sense of patience and this love for the process. And you having sort of you know seen both sides of this, you were there when we didn't have all this stuff in play, like the internet. So, h- how do you think about that now?
1: Um, well, which part of it about process? I
2: guess yeah, about process and and the impatience. Do you see impatience in young creators? Um, you know, and oh, then. Yeah. And what do you say to them in these moments, and you know, even the guys, people who get book deals, they go like, I know this. I was firsthand thinking, I was like, oh, you, you get one, you know, like the book deal is like this huge accomplishment, and the moment the book <laughs> comes out, the deal no longer matters. It's like who gives a shit? Everybody gets book deals, um, you know, and you, you don't realize the value of that. You no longer value it, and you're like, wait a minute, it's like, well, Ryan Holiday sold three hundred thousand books. We're at the same imprint. I'm a failure. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Well, to somebody who can't get their book published, you're a great success, right? Yeah, exactly.
2: So I I wonder, you know, kind of how you think about this as somebody who is in the position that you're in and having seen this world prior to social media and, you know, what it looks like now.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it looks like now, you know, that's the other thing. I, I, I always, I feel like people are people are people. And I know that we change and technology change, you know, the industrial revolution changed us and, the techno, you know, the technological, you know, revolution changed us and, and all of that. So, you know, our attention spans are getting shorter and there are studies to this effect and all of that. I, I do think that people want meaning and, and, and I, and I feel like, you know, there is definitely a, um, I feel like there must be a corollary from other centuries, right? That That's what I'm saying. It's like, I think, so I think, yes, I think social media means that people think, Hey, I'll just start an Instagram account and then I'll be up to like 500,000 followers. And, you know, you know, if I just post every day and people, you know, the people who are really successful on, you know, on say Instagram, So you know, I don't do Twitter. So I, I have an IG account that I have for fun, but, um, you know, people don't understand how much time even that takes. Right. So do I think that people um, want, you know, they, they expect, you know, to get the gold star, they, the, the promotion, you know, I think that they've been, you know, sold a bunch of crap by, you know, the way the world looks pretty on social media. And, but I mean, this goes back to advertising. If you go look at advertising from the, you know, the fifties, you know, you, you know, that, that was the promise of advertising, right. You know, Buy this thing and buy this car and you'll be happy you know you know buy this makeup and you'll be beautiful and your husband will love you more or whatever whatever the promise is you know it's always there're always these shortcuts and I think that you know we're sold a bunch of crap with those shortcuts, but that really speaks of a kind of a spiritual absence abs, you know absence and grounding in some way and that everything is hard everything. Mm-hmm. A long time if you talk to anyone at all who's been through process but for some reason we always want to think it's easier for other people that they didn't have to go through the trials and I, I you know it's like i wrote the book and and i feel like i touched the surface of this and then since the book i've been thinking much more more deeply about it yeah and trying to really understand why people think that everybody else has it better easier quicker You know, and that they're comparing, they're looking over their shoulder as opposed to just saying, Where am I right now?
4: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, you know, I get a question all the time that you'll probably appreciate. Um, but being a writer and a publisher, when I speak to groups of people about any of this, whether it's suck at something or, you know, write the writing process or anything I'm speaking about, I'll always, every single crowd, somebody will raise their hand and say, you know, how do I get published? (laughs) And I'll say, wrong question ask me another question. And they kind of look at me puzzled and I'll say, ask me another question. Getting published, is just doesn't, is not the point. It's really about, you know, how do I, you know, you know, develop my writing skills or my storytelling skills and, and do you have advice about, you know, what your process is? You know, it's only process. I said, because, and you know this, right? You know, you write, the fun part is writing the book and publishing is great. I mean, we all, I do it every day for my authors and I published a couple of books myself, but that is not, that is not the most rewarding part. The rewarding part is the process of doing the writing, which takes years usually, mm-hmm. um, of thinking and, and executing. Yeah. And then it's also connecting with another reader, right? So a reader reads you and then you make that connection because you that's what a book is, right? It reaches out to people you wouldn't, I would never have this conversation with you if yeah. you didn't hear about my book and say, oh, we have a lot in common, then all of a sudden we get to make a connection. That to me is what it's about. Yeah. The getting published part is like, that's the um, signal, the kind of external signal that you are validated that uh-huh. you are Worthy, and it, it will never make you, that will never make you happy, right? That just, yeah. it, will, it just doesn't happen that way. The process can, can be fulfilling. And the connection, I think, is really, really, truly important. And yes, you might have to get published to, to make that connection, but there are other ways to make connections as well.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny, my self-published books, have, uh, like the one I had, you know, that kind of put me on the map, outsold both of my traditionally published books. So that was, you <laughs> you
1: know,
2: One component of it, but I think that you made a really interesting point about sort of the process. You know, it, it's funny, people would ask me, look, how does it feel to be done? And I said, to be honest, now I'm depressed. This thing yeah. that has been my like huge source of meaning for, yeah. um, you know, two years now is gone. Like I, totally. you know, yeah. it's, it's disorienting to not have this thing that you're working on. Um, but I think that you know, this is actually makes a perfect segue to sort of, you know, uh, how you, you know, basically give us an invitation to suck. And this was something that struck me because I think both of us as surfers know this. You know, it doesn't matter how bad a first time was. A key component to sucking at something is acceptance of first times are overrated. This is even, uh, this is true even for what comes naturally. Now, I don't know anybody who went to a first surf lesson and was like, holy shit, that was amazing. I, like I always tell my friends, I was like, learning to surf sucks.
1: <laughs> Surfing totally. is amazing.
2: Um yeah. and so, but the thing is, I wonder, you know, why we don't embrace this more. You know, what role does our education system play in people, you know, not being okay with sucking? Because so many people, they might have a bad first experience with something and say, "Oh yeah," like I mean, I could tell you from my first surfing experience, I was the most unlikely person to become a surfer between being, you know, Indian and not genetically predisposed for anything athletic, and you know, the fact that I just was a total kook, like. It, none of my friends thought when we were living in Brazil that I would be the one that, you know, ended up surfing for the next 10 years. Oh, and, yeah. and I wonder, you know, why is it that people lose that sort of um, drive? Like what, you know, that they, they suck at something once. And then yeah. that seems to get even worse as adults to the point where they won't even try something new.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's true. I mean, that's one of the conversations I've had more than any others um, with adults is that, Oh, you know, you know i haven't tried something new in a really long time and people you know we're addicted to goal setting reward getting you know validation we become addicted to that stuff really and when we try something and we find we're not good at it we you know the it just it just it it kind of turns up the volume on the critic in our head, right? And, you know, it says that you are no good, that you suck, that it's interesting, the whole great, the, you know, being great to suck at something is really meant to be an act of, of self-love <laughs> when at first it seems like, why would I say that I suck at something? So it's counterintuitive in that way. My point is, is that as soon as you try something and you fail at it, but say you had fun, I mean, you know, I always think of musical instruments are one of those things that are incredibly satisfying when you get it right, but it takes mm. a lot. Long- to learn and you know being afraid of you know you know carrying the shame around not being innately talented we seem to we seem to falsely believe in a kind of innate talent as opposed to the hard work that actually is necessary like very few of us are you know preternaturally sort of predisposed to be a genius at one thing Mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes those things frankly the things that come easily you know, you know, I don't find actually the most pleasure in that. I find more pleasure in the things that are actually quite difficult. And then you find the tenacity and the resilience to sort of overcome the obstacles. And then you get it done. You think, wow, I just got through that. But I do think that we're, we're, you know, I think there's a lot, you know, the whole book in a way is about that, about our, our resistance to sucking at something. But I think it's part of the culture telling us that we're not allowed to, it's part of the culture telling us, you know, that we feel humiliated, Um, you know, that's the thing about surfing is that when you're out in the lineup, like everybody knows you're the kook. I mean, there is just no way around it. And what I have found is that I had to get over, you know, surfing is the coolest sport in the world. If you're good at it, Mm -hmm. (laughs) the thing, I mean, Mm -hmm. you can't be less cool than there's nothing less cool than a not good surfer. (laughs) And and, and that's me. That would be me. Um, You know, it doesn't mean I can't surf. You know, I do surf. When people see me catch waves, they're always completely shocked because they're like, Oh my god, you do surf. I'm like, Yeah, I can surf. It's just it just it's hard for me but yeah I I can, once I, you know, paddle into catch and, you know, catch a wave, I can catch sections and have a nice ride and blah, blah, blah. They're like, Oh, you could, I was like, yeah, I can do this. <laughs> but, you know, so much of it is not pretty. Um yeah. But what I found is that what was beautiful is when I let go of that idea of, okay, I have to let go of the way I'm afraid people are what they're thinking about me. Right. Cause actually people aren't really thinking about you cause they yeah. just uh, out themselves and what they, you know, people are thinking about their own waves. They just don't want you in the way. But I think this is a metaphor for everything else. It's like, not only do people not judge you if you aren't judging yourself, right? Yeah, Judging yourself is really where it all starts. So if you let go of that, right, and you say, I'm just not going to judge myself in this. I'm just going to do it because I'm out on the board and I'm out in the lineup and I'm really happy and I'm going to be safe and I'm going to be respectful and do all the right things I need to do in the lineup. But I am going to try. What? happens is that everyone around you and this happens more times than it doesn't every once in a while somebody's a jerk but that person that's that person's problem most people are so incredibly generous and what they want to do is they want to help you so i in 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 being out in public and not being an expert in something and being okay with that not being clueless and and arrogant and ignorant because that's that's those things are dangerous being cognizant that i am not in full control, that I am not the best surfer out there, that I need help, um, that I will be careful, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'll, you know I'll, what happens is that people around me, I get people blocking for me, helping uh-huh. me into waves, people giving me their waves. People are so kind. And I realize that kindness comes not from me being an expert. The kindness comes from me saying, I'm scared, or that wave might be too big for me, or should I, you know, I, I'm afraid I don't have priority, you know, should I go, but I think this applies anywhere. If you're like in the potting studio, and you're throwing pottery, which is really hard to do, or making, you know, you know, people who are in that world, like, you know, if you go in there, and like, you're embarrassed, because you're like, Oh, I can't do this. This is too hard. I look like an idiot, you know, and then what happens is you don't even open up the opportunity to connect with someone else who can say, Hey, let me help you. Do you know mm-hmm. how good? It, it, how good it feels to have someone who's, you know, better than you at something, who's more knowledgeable, who says, let me help you. To me, it's one of the great gifts that goes in both directions. You mm. we'll allow people to help you and you also are able to receive this kindness that this person gets to bestow, right, on, on you. And it's just this beautiful loop that if we aren't afraid to suck at something if, if we become afraid to suck at something and we're afraid to try anything new or be a newbie or be less than good at it who's going to ever step in and kind of help you and i've learned that so much beauty comes out of that mm. um, connection this is a kind of knock-on effect that i didn't expect and i kind of came to later and i realized that the surfing community has been so kind to me even though i started late and I struggle, and it's been, been, and it's an incredibly judgmental and difficult community, right? Like, right. I mean, you know, it's a tough, it's a tough place. And by the way, I wouldn't get into a crowded lineup in Malibu, yeah. Be a person who's goofy and can't go right, and then screw up everybody's lot. Like, I, I would, <laughs> right? Like, it would be a problem, but. You know that said, if I had a friend to paddle out with at Malibu and said, you know, can you help me? Can you block for me? Can you help me call me into a wave and help me go backside? You know, blah, blah blah. I would do it, but I would do it in a respectful way. But the point is, is that it's like knowing your place, but also the communities, even the surfing community, is actually incredibly generous and kind. And I that's been a A great thing. And the other thing is that, you know, and this is this is really where this leads, is that when you allow yourself to try something, see, I think there there are things that people always say, Oh, I'd love to dance, but I wouldn't dance. I'm not a good dancer. Oh, I love to sing, or I love to play the guitar or the trumpet or the violin, but I'm not any good at it. And I'm like, Yeah. (laughs) So what? You're not making your living doing it. Like so go do it. I've had so many people start new things. My sister's doing watercolors. A good friend of mine is dancing for the first time. Like people are doing things they wouldn't normally do. And then they find the joy in it. And of course, guess what? You get better as uh-huh. you do.
4: Yeah.
1: But one of the things that I think is, a uh, is the bonus from all of this is that the things we're good at, like, I'm, listen, I don't suck at everything. I suck at some things. I, you know, surfing is the thing that means the most to me that I suck at. I love surfing more than probably more than anything else that I do. And the thing I am least good at, which doesn't make any sense, which is what got me thinking about the book, right? It's like, how can I get the most joy out of the thing that I, that I am worst at? And I thought, well, partly is that there is so much freedom And not having to be good at it, nobody needs me to surf well. You know what I mean? Like, less the person who's you know, you know, you know, on my line, and I can't avoid them because I'm staring right at them instead of staring at the wall. Whatever I do, screwy things. But I mostly don't need to surf well. um, And there's freedom in that, so I can get out there and I can just. I don't have to perform. Nobody's counting on me to do that. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is that because I'm used to doing this thing that is very difficult and doing it anyway with great kind of perseverance and resilience and tenacity and all that other stuff. When I suck at things that I'm supposed to be good at, by the way, I do. When I suck at being a communicator or a publisher or a writer or a, you know, a parent or all the things that I do that are really important to me, I find that it's a lot quicker for me to recover from that moment of suckiness, right? As opposed to beating myself up too much. I recover and then I can correct it. Doesn't mean you get a pass. Right, something up things that are really important. You should basically fix it, but you don't have to go through that whole self hatred. Oh God, I screwed up. Oh God, I'm worthless. Okay, all that bullshit kind of stuff that gets into your head that really doesn't help anybody get anywhere. And I really do think that practicing this discipline of surfing and not being good at it, but doing it anyway. Has given me a lot more patience with myself, and also made me a lot more quicker to fix the things that I screw up where it does matter. Yeah, and, and to admit it, you know because I know what it feels like. I know what it feels like to cook out on that wave. I know what it feels like to put myself in danger. I know what it feels like, you know, to to you know to just do something wrong. That there's so many ways to do that on a wave, but yeah. that I take that lesson and then I apply it to the places where the stakes are high, and I found that. People always say, oh, does sucking at something make you better at everything else? No, it only makes you better at sucking. I know that sounds crazy, but it makes you better at sucking even even at the things you're good at because you're always going to mess up in the things you're good at, no matter who you are. We all do it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, when I it's funny people ask about the writing process. Like, oh, ninety percent of everything I read is absolute shit. Like nobody, oh, yeah. you there always you know. are like, why would anybody pay me to write books? That was a terrible idea. But it's it's funny you even mentioned surfing because I think that you know I have had days after ten years when I paddle out I don't catch a single wave. I'm like, how could I be this bad at something I've done for so long? <laughs> Uh, but I think that one of the other things you said, and this makes a really perfect segue to talk specifically about education, because I think you and I were talking about educators uh before we hit record. We have a lot of parents listening to this. You know, you say if we create a habit of wanting only a certain outcome, we can get stuck on focusing on the result. It's a totally different mindset from learning. There are words associated with improvement, but learning is a process of gathering, not of sewing. Learning opens up to the world. Now, the funny thing is our education system is ironically, despite the fact that its function is to basically, you know create learning, it's incredibly outcome focused. You get rewarded for good grades by acceptance to a prestigious college. If you do well at that college, you get your job at Google or Goldman Sachs. Right. So right. how do we have these two paradoxes coexist and yet give people you know, the permission to suck at the same time?
1: Well, I mean, I think that, you know, that, that outcome, what you're talking about is like an outcome of what, you know, Goldman Sachs or Google and going to an Ivy or a little Ivy, you know, as opposed to going to, you know, just getting an education and, and, you know, and, and following, you know, doing things with great intention and following your heart because there's, you know, there are a lot of other, other of us who don't do that, you know, who don't have those, you know, the, the super high, you know, golden key jobs which, by the way, never guarantee anybody to be happy at all, not for one second. Um, but I think that idea that the our education system is set up, and I don't have, I'm not an educator, so I don't even have an answer for this. I do know that the whole testing system and the standardized tests and stuff do not respect and do not make the most out of the ways in which kids can be so smart and, you know, um, creative and brilliant. Like I know a lot of kids who struggle in school and these kids are just as smart as any other kid. It's just that they don't test well, or they don't, you know, academically they're not performing, but there's not an outlet for them to be more creative or to thinking not linearly or not in that kind of standardized way. So it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't reflect the great spectrum of, you know, of, humans, you know, and their, their ways in which they are, you know, can tap into their creative, you know, aspects and their talent or, you know, in any of those things. And I, I don't know what the answer is to, you know, with funding cut from schools where you've cut theater and dance and art and music and all those things. I think that is just a great failure of the American education where those are the first things to get cut where, you know, part of me would go like, forget all the other stuff, forget the, you know, let's let's just teach them how to think and to be creative, and to give them exposure to all this stuff to see where they where they will thrive. Yeah. So you know, I think it's just it, it breaks my heart. You know, the way that schools, you know, do, and not all schools, but there is a great failure in the American public school education where you know kids don't. You have to fit down a line, and then okay, so if you're not going to fit into that conventional pattern. You then need a support system at home that's going to help you work around that, right? And figure out, you know, and not pathologize it. And and I, and I, don't, I don't, you know, you, you got to, it's got to be working somewhere. So if you don't get it in the schools, and you need to have it at home, and then I think you know a lot of parents struggle with that. I also, frankly, think a lot of parents get really competitive, and you know, with other parents and other kids, and you know, and push their kids to, you know you know, succeed conventionally, um, you know, for their own messed up reasons, you know, everybody does that, but I think that that's really a disservice to kids. It doesn't help learn at all. So, you know, we have to watch, we have to, we have to put a check on our own, you know, ambitions for our children and make sure that they're not about our egos and what, you know, what we think is right, as opposed to just listening to what your kid needs how your kid wants to learn and succeed and for us not to put pressure, even if we don't put pressure on the grades, the culture is doing it. But if the culture is doing it and the, and the parents are doing it, um, I don't think it guarantees any kind of happiness, fulfillment, or even success, frankly. I guess you can call me the opposite of a tiger mom in a way. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, which is probably why I wanted to talk to you. Cause you know, that's, that's, you know, as somebody who grew up in an Indian family, you know, we were very much in like, you know, there was failure was not encouraged. And, and, you know, that actually I think takes me to something else you said. You said that every time you see someone fail willingly in public, that person is loud and clearly and simultaneously telling you that you may just be missing it. I'm more than enough to account for this failure and other failures and anything else. My worth doesn't depend on it. Yes. You can say that to anytime you want. And that probably was my favorite quote from the entire book.
1: Oh, uh, it's so good. Great. No, and
2: no. the reason that one, you know, struck me in particular is because we don't celebrate public failure. It's not like you're yeah. putting the people who blew startups up on the cover of magazines. You're putting right. billionaires and you know founders of unicorns on the covers of magazines. And yeah, yet, they, the they, willingness to do what you said is what we'll put them there.
1: But I was going to say that they, but they had those failures before that. They, yeah. they definitely. If we don't, people don't pause to think about that. Like you don't. That does not happen without the failures that preceded. I don't care who it is.
2: Yeah. So I guess then you know how do we change the narrative, you know, to, to actually pay attention to the part that we're missing.
1: Well, I mean, as opposed one, to what we just see. Yeah, no, I mean, one of the things is to do that very thing, which is why I wrote the book in a way is just to have people say out loud and to celebrate and share, you know, what they suck at. And so my great, you know, my great desire was to create a community of people who celebrated and shared these things. And, and in fact, you know, that's what a lot of the conversations, the conversations that I have with people because of this book you know, once you open it up, you—it's—it's it's amazing. I've done it in groups and I've done it individually. And when people start talking about the things that they suck at, there is so much laughter and there's so much joy, and you can see the relief. And you go, that's one of the steps is to you know to celebrate that as well. And yeah. I think that you know this celebrating only the the the, the successes is just. I don't know. And maybe there's something innate in me. It's like, I always like when I go in for a review with my, you know, with my, you know, I, you know, I have a boss and I go in for a review and he'll start telling me what I do well. And I'm like, you know what? I, I know what I do. Well, I don't really want to hear that. Just tell me what you think that I'm not doing. Like, help, you know, tell me what I am what I'm sucking at. I can yeah. take it. But I also, that's helpful to me. You know, mm-hmm. I know, I know what I'm doing well. You know, I don't need to, I don't need to, I don't need to see that. Not to say that you don't celebrate. Right. Things. I'm not a big, you know, hey, I did my job, you know, I, I need a gold star. No, I did my job, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Like, there's uh-huh. some possibility there. But, okay. you know, the way in which if I am, you know, if something I'm doing, either something I could be doing better, that's what I want to hear about. Yeah. And I feel like that partly comes from this discipline of really being okay, sucking at something and not feeling entitled. Again, it's that thing, what I think, whatever you read in the beginning, where I say, you know, when we do succeed, it should be, you know, in, 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 it should be humbling. Yeah. You know, and 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 it's just you know we've lost a lot of humility. Um, it, and, and frankly, I think that you know, in the, the loss of humility is a, is on the other side of that is a fear of humiliation, right? Uh, Which comes from the same word. So that's what's interesting. It's almost the same word, but they're very different. Humility is very powerful. And humiliation is one of the most terrifying. Experiences feelings that humans can have. Right, it terrifies us. So I think it comes from that place of the fear of being humiliated. But in that, we overcompensate by being fearful, and then not trying new things and not, you know, not allowing ourselves to experience things. And um, so, where does humility fit in any of that? You know, there's no room for it. And I, I, I think that if this discipline. Of, of being okay with failing. And I'm not, it's not a call for failure, though. That's the other thing. Yeah. It's not a call for failure at all. Like, you know, striving for excellence. I mean, I strive for excellence every time I surf. I mean, I wanna surf. I wanna surf well. I wanna surf better. Not yeah. I wanna suck at it. I mean, I had a day last in January when I paddled out. <laughs> I paddled out and I didn't catch one wave. And I came out of the water after two hours and I turned to my son and I just said, I fucking hate surfing. I just hate surfing.
2: <laughs> I've had those days.
1: Yeah. And I just thought, and I was like, I, why do I do this? You know, and I had, I had to go through the whole, it was very funny though. And I yeah. had to even ex- be able to let myself express that. Like I had to let myself go there and yeah. hate it and express that hate for it in a way so that I could just get to the next day where I would paddle out again. And, you know, and I had a better session the next day, but um, you know, you, you have to be you know honest about that. And also, you know, it's, it's, it's my, when I do catch waves and I ride them, you know, I feel like it's a great privilege in a way. And I, am very, I feel very humbled by it. I do, even though I'm the one catching them and riding them, I still feel very humbled by the whole act. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a great, it's an amazing feeling. It's a feeling of gratitude as opposed to, I'm entitled to catch that wave. No, I'm not, it's hard and I'm not entitled to it. You know what I mean? But I am grateful for every single one that I catch and ride. And then when I catch and ride them well, yeah, okay, I'll, you know, my ego gets tapped, I'll, 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 that'll carry me for a while to the yeah. next, but you know what, if I didn't, you know, didn't push and suck at it for so many years, I never would have known what that feeling was, and that feeling is the, you know, I mean, I think it's the best feeling in the world, but, yeah, that's, I'm sure, you know, snowboarding is, is similar, and yeah, yeah, I guess with free skates, and, and, you know, as well, and,
0: you know, I think
2: that there's one thing that you said, you know, towards the end of the book, which I think is a really beautiful place to bring us full circle. You know, you said if we can find beauty and meaning in our efforts, then we open our hearts to so much of what life offers. And while hearts will sometimes break, the lacquer that heals them is the joy an open heart summons. And I think that struck me in particular because I wanted to ask you about recovery from failure. Because you know, you said our heart will sometimes break, but the lacquer yeah. that heals them is the yeah. joy an open heart summons. And I think In so many cases, that doesn't happen for people after a failure, that they make a permanent decision based on a temporary circumstance.
1: Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. And then they'll never allow themselves, kind of give themselves the the, I mean, that's give themselves the opportunity for that healing to occur. Right? If you shut (sighs) down as soon as something breaks down or fails or something, you don't allow for what's waiting on the other side of it. so yeah, and then, you know, I think in p- part of that chapter, what I talk about is, is, is talking to, uh, I think it's when I talked to Elizabeth Lesser, who's the founder of Omega Institute. And she basically says that, you know, if you're going to have an open heart, right, and you're going to feel joy. That open heart is also going to lead you to pain. You can't only open it to one channel. Like <laughs> you can't do that. It's not the way it works, right? Mm-hmm. So that's the idea. It's like you have to be open to be open to to, to success or joy, right? You have to be open to failure and frustration. Right. And you don't get to have just one pathway to reward success, you know, um, you know, ability and all that. You have to be open to the other thing and not and, and understand that there are all valuable that there's not one. One is not, you know, don't have a value proposition that it's like. Well, when I'm having a good time, you know, or when I'm catching a wave, that's when surfing is good. And when I paddle out and I sit there and I, you get snaked or I kook out on on every single wave, it's not a good experience. As opposed to, well, wait, when I paddle out, I'm in the water. I'm in nature. You know, I'm having an experience, and that experience, you know, should not rely on whether or not I ride well wave well. And mostly that's the way I kind of experience it. But every once in a while I forget my own teaching and then I'll go out and I'll get really frustrated and that feels bad. And that just feels bad as opposed to getting out of the water and going, oh man, I just got, you know, and I've had sessions where I've just gotten hammered. You just get hammered, you get hammered, you get hammered. You And I have had people watch me and say, why do you do it? And I'm like, cause actually that part is just as much fun too, you know, you know, in the wave, under the wave, you know, whatever you're doing. And again, that metaphor you know, kind of goes forward to basically any effort that you're making. And I always think that like, there's a great, you know, it's a great metaphor for writing because you're right. Most writing is just crap. <sighs> you know, we write crap, we write it, we write it again, we write it again. It's like the stuff that you keep and then actually put in the world is, you know, one tiny fraction of, of, of the work that you've done. I can't tell you, I've got like so many books sitting in my file that are books that I've started. I've got like five books that I've started that I've got. Yeah, they're just not good. They're not there. I'm not there. Whatever it is. And that's yeah. okay too. Like I don't ever think about that. You know, you don't think about that of saying that's a waste of time because that's mm-hmm. all process and it's necessary to get to the, to the good stuff.
2: Yeah. I always say you have to shovel a mountain of shit to get an ounce of gold.
1: <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. And that, but that's true. I mean, I do think that surfing really applies to that because most of the time, what is it? You never see the, I have the percentage in the book and I forget what it is offhand, but like, even for, professional surfers like the, the, the percentage of time that they're actually surfing as yeah. opposed to doing everything else that you do is you know there i don't think there's another sport in the world where that's true mm-hmm. you know what i mean it's like it's you there's a you know you there's a lot of time spent doing something else besides being on that wave mm-hmm. you know and for me it's like you know a tiny tiny fraction of that um If you're not loving the process, like forget it. And the same thing with writing. I think if you don't love the process, like you shouldn't be doing it. If you're just writing, it's like writing to get published, you know, forget it. That's just the, you know, you want people to read your work for sure, but you can't start
2: there. Wow. Um, Well, I think that makes a really beautiful place to uh, finish our conversation. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: unmistakable you know it's funny cuz when you look at that word right what does it mean unmistakable you mean you mean undeniable clear i think every single one of us is a creative i think every so i, I mean i would say that every one of us is an unmistakable creative because the creative process is all iterative right so you're just iterating and iterating and iterating and however if you're iterating right as long as you keep doing it i mean i think the the if if you're if you're iterating then you're creating and whether it's good or not or a value again almost doesn't matter unless you try to sell it or you know you're looking for validation or something like that so i think i think all of us have that quality and you just you, you just wish everybody would tap into their whatever their particular thing is and they shouldn't look at somebody else's creative kind of process mm-hmm. and say I should be doing that I should be getting up in the morning and writing from four to you know <laughs> morning because that's how a friend does I can you know I don't do that you know you're just gonna You know, or I should surf like this other person, or I should draw better lines, or you know, on a on a on a wave, or you know. So I think that everyone, in a way, is and I'm like, I think the unmistakable part of that is that you to create, you can't. You know, making mistakes is what iterating is, right? Mm -hmm. That's what it is. And then every once in a while, we stumble into something. It's like I, you know, I'll stumble into catching and you know. And, you know, maneuvering on that wave really well. And I go, wow. But most of it is just a try and another try and another try. And then you try and you fall off or you pop up and then you, you know, wipe out or, you know, somebody's in your way. And I think that's all part of the creative process, though. I don't know if I'm answering that yeah. correctly. No, that's, there's no correct answer. To no, this correct. no, no, exactly. No, I, that, was the, and that, was, that was a slip. And and, a, and probably an important one if I was going to psychoanalyze it. but. Yeah. <laughs>
2: incredible um well i can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your uh insights and wisdom with our listeners where can people find out more about you your work and everything else that you're up to
1: uh the best place to go is my i have two websites but the krinaldi.com is probably where you find most stuff and you can it'll lead you to the suck it something um website as well but krinaldi it's where my uh all my essays are and it's just updated with all my information so yeah that's 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 probably the best place and then on um instagram i am rinaldi wave um, and or suck at something so i have two instagram accounts but the one that I, I populate more is rinaldi wave cool awesome and for everybody listening we will wrap the show with that
2: Hey, did you know that every Sunday, our community manager, Melina, sends out 10 key takeaways from episodes just like this one? All you have to do to receive it is sign up for our newsletter. Just visit UnmistakableCreative.com slash newsletter and you'll get them delivered right to your inbox. Again, that's UnmistakableCreative.com
0: slash newsletter.
6: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European Linen Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
0: Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration